The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. As always, we are grateful for the financial support that helps Something to Say continue. Sky and I began this with individual investment, but we're aware for us to be able to sustain it, we were going to need the help of those who listen to it. And we're thankful for those who have thus far. And we invite you to offer yours. There are several ways to do that. You can go to the oamnetwork.com website and there find the Something to Say page. Or if you use any of the apps, the cash app is dollar sign P-O-D-M-E-M or on Venmo at P-O-D-M-E-M. And if you use cash app or Venmo, be sure to list Something to Say as the beneficiary of your gift. We thank you so much for all the ways you continue to show your support to Something to Say. This is something to say, conversation of two friends of 40 years who are clergy. One of us is retired. That's me. The other one is still going at it. That'd be me. That's Sky. I'm Johnny. We're glad you're with us. We're thankful for your continued support of our podcast and this journey we're taking. We're coming up on our 10th episode, after which we were going to do some evaluation about where to go. But it looks like we're going to have some support to carry on, brother. So that's some pretty good news. Yeah. Who'd have thunk it? Yeah. We're up to about five listeners now. That's right. That's right. Um, That's awesome. Go team. Yeah. Today we have a particular opportunity to speak with one of the leaders, recognized leaders in the United Methodist Church. Adam Hamilton is the pastor, senior pastor of Church of the Resurrection in Leewood, and gratefully gave us some time to have conversation about how he's pastored through this season, some things that he's dealing with, and as he understands the work of the church in a time of crisis, he'll share with us a bit about his own sense of what's going on within the denomination, and I may have him answer a question or two about the 1969 Kansas City Chiefs. I had nothing wrong with that. Uh, all my family's from Kansas, so uh, Chiefs uh, appreciation for the Chiefs is in the blood. There you go. Any of you who know Adam or have read his stuff or listened to him knows that Adam can talk. So Sky and I are not going to go at it too long on the front end. Come and back. We probably won't interrupt him much either. No, we'll just let him go. <laughs> That's right. So when we come back, we are pleased to welcome to something to say. Reverend Adam Hamilton. With us today is Adam Hamilton. He is the pastor of Church of the Resurrection, the founding pastor, the senior pastor. Thank you for taking time to be with us today. Thanks for inviting me. It's always an honor and privilege to hang out with you for a little while, Sky and Johnny. Uh-huh. Great to have, have a chance to hang out with you as well. Likewise. We thought we would uh, go on the side of candor. We know in this season that it is difficult to be a clergy leader. It's always been difficult, but uh, through the pandemic and through all the uncertainty that's gone on, uh, it's been especially difficult. We're just curious, how is it with your soul? Just in general, how, how have you navigated the waters the the past year or so? Yeah, that's a great question. Obviously, it's been a hard year for everybody. And at the same time, some really exhilarating and awesome opportunities as the world has changed around us and, and as we've tried to be the church and to respond to what's going on in the world. So 
first of all, I find that there's a whole lot of pastors who have had a, you know, two things that were particularly difficult in their year. One was having to learn all new ways of doing ministry. I mean, everything went online. I think it's remarkable that virtually, well, every church in the United States closed their doors for at least some period of time. For Resurrection, it was almost a year. We reopened in October of 2020 for four weeks and closed back down again until just about a month ago. And so everybody had to learn something new. And for us at Resurrection, we'd already been doing online worship for quite some time, but we revamped that completely. We realized you know, we were letting people take a look into our sanctuary in live worship. And now we were able to design worship with the people on the other side of the camera in mind. We improved the quality of what we were doing. We began launching every ministry that we had online or almost every ministry online. And so that required every staff member to learn how to do ministry in different ways. And, you know, it was a great learning opportunity, but it was also a preparation for the future because I think the future is an increasing number of people who are going to access our ministries online. And I think the in-person is really important. And I think we're going to have to make a good case for that for our people to say, here's why you should come in person, but huge opportunities and upside if we can figure out how to do the online well. You know, so there was that. And when it comes to preaching, when you show up to an empty room and you're preaching to, in my case, 3,300 seats that are empty and you got a few people behind cameras you can't see, it's a different deal. You know, I'm a, yeah. I'm a people person, you know, and even now that we're back in person, we film on Friday and then I, and then I preach live on Sunday. It's always better live on Sunday because I'm, I'm having a conversation with the people who are out there. And, uh, and I find that people who don't preach very often to an empty room, it's, it's particularly intimidating when I have a guest preacher or there or one of our pastors who's not used to doing it. It takes a while to get used to how do you preach to people? You say something funny and nobody laughs. You say something endearing and you can't tell if anybody's moved by what you said. Mm-hmm. You're just, you have no reactions to what's going on. So that's, you know, that was a little bit hard. And, you know, we figured out how to do that. I think the more challenging thing was it was such a challenging year between the political polarization, the uh, conflict and and the uh, reality of racism and how we address that and how we talk about that. Yeah. And then in the midst of that, you know, COVID became a proxy for, for the political divide. I don't want to wear a mask. If you want me to wear a mask, you must be a Democrat. You know, if you don't want to wear a mask, you must be a Republican. You know, you're either for Trump or against Trump based upon whether you're having worship services or not following Easter last year when the president said everybody should go back to church. So there was a heightened sense of anxiety. We had people who were, you know, told me they were leaving the church when we didn't open up for Easter in 2020 after the president's, you know, announcement that churches should go back. And I'm like, gosh, I'm sorry, but, you know, I feel responsible for the safety of the people in this congregation. I am their shepherd and I'm not going to bring us back to worship when I think there's a chance that people could get hurt. And then, you know, again, uh, I'll come back if you don't make us wear masks. And when we were talking about George Floyd and his death, the death of Ahmaud Arbery, you look at all of the other things that were going on, Breonna Taylor, you look at Christian Cooper, who was harassed in Central Park and Travis Miller and in Edmond, Oklahoma, the J.B. Hunt truck driver. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so after George Floyd's death, you know, I spent, you know, three weeks focused on America's original sin using Jim Wallace's terms. And, you know, we had 300 people leave the church over that. And it wasn't that any of them would call themselves racist or that they were favoring, a, you know, George Floyd's death, but they didn't, they thought that the approach that we took was not the right approach. And it, you know, made them mad. And you get, you get enough of those letters at a given time and it begins to take its toll on your soul. You know, the criticism, the, the people are upset. You're, you know, you didn't support the president, you're, you know, whatever. What I found was across the country, this was true for pastors this year, because, you know, you had pastors who felt like they needed to say something. And yet, whatever they said, they were going to get criticized. And so, a lot of pastors, a lot of pastors I talked to, just didn't say anything. They were they were too afraid of people leaving, being criticized, that they just decided I'll just keep doing what I've always been doing and not talk about these things that are going on in our world. And I don't think that's the right approach, you know. So, there's been moments where, you know, over the last year, where we had people leaving in uh, 300 is not a huge number at resurrection, but it's 
still material in terms yeah. of how it feels to your soul. It was a great year, an awesome year, and it was a really hard year. The, the part that was exhilarating was the chance to lead the church to be the church in a time where everybody's afraid or where people are polarized or where you know frontline workers are exhausted and ask, how can we bring people hope? How can we tangibly provide food for people who are hungry? How do we go about caring for hospital workers and nurses? It's been an, an ex- exciting, exhilarating year and an exhausting year all wrapped into one. I, I want yeah. to follow up with that. I mean, I some of what we've talked about previously with some of our colleagues more locally is how we've had to be adaptive through the COVID season. But the comment you made previously is what is kind of sparking a thought in my mind. The question really now is not what is our ecclesiological framework through COVID? It's what is it now, whatever the normal is post-COVID. But Dust's challenge at some point, our understanding of ecclesiology pre-COVID, and it's both challenge and opportunity, but do you do you find yourself at any sort of theological impasse of what it might mean? Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. The church is the church gathered. That's what I know. And yet, if we have people who believe that they can still be church without coming, even when it's safe, I don't know what I would do with that if it was they were my people. I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Well, we we've been talking about this beforehand because for ten years we've been online and asking what is this real church when people are worshiping with us online. And on a typical weekend pre-COVID, we had about three thousand people who would worship with us online, and then another maybe a thousand over the week, you know, after that who would worship with us. And many of those were our members. They were members who were out of town. They were members who were sick. They were members who, whatever reason, couldn't come. Some of them came to like jammy church and they would just go to church in their pajamas and they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't show up anymore. But I was really glad that at least they were staying connected. And we counted that as worship. So that that counts as worship. I think there it's not the same when you're online or on TV versus being in the room. So this last few weeks I've been really trying to emphasize to our people, you know, if you're here in Kansas City, I want you to come back. And each week we'll have a couple hundred more people who show up and and every to a person. As they're walking out, they're like, yeah, you're right. It wasn't the same. There was something about being with other people. There was something about singing and praying and, and being in the room, sacred space and, and all of that. So that I think is true. And I think at the same time, the world has changed and the world was going to change. It just, as we all know, moved, sped up the process up. by five to 10 years. And I think we have to come to terms with that our ecclesiology has to take into account that the church is the church when it's gathered, even if they're not physically in the same space, they are spiritually in the same place. We think about, talk about the communion of the saints and the thin spaces where we're connected with those who've gone before us in heaven. Well, when we gather for worship, that's another thin space where we're connected not only with those online, connected not only with those who've gone before us into heaven, but we're connected with those who are uh, worshiping with us at the same time. And I, the example I have of this is, Holy Communion. So there was a great debate before COVID as to whether you could have Holy Communion and people could receive it at home. So, and I know there are people who are like, that's just not good Christian. It's not good theology. It's bad theology, whatever. We had started having communion online and then we sort of backed off that for a little while. And then during COVID, it was like, this is the only way they're going to have communion. I mean, we could do some kind of drive-by thing, but not many are going to come for that. And so we do, and the bishop said, hey, it's okay. And the first time I did online communion and I'm standing at the altar table, and I am saying the great Thanksgiving and breaking the bread and saying, now I want you at home. I want you to take the bread that you have or the crackers. And I want you to hold it in your hand while I'm praying this prayer. And then now I'd like for you to dip it in the cup. And we're going to eat it together at the same time. And in that moment, there's just this holy moment. I had this sense of 
there being several thousand people in that moment who were taking communion together. And we were, we couldn't be with each other, but we were bound together in that moment by this common act that we were doing. And we were connected across online to be able to do that. It was, it was, uh, it was profound. And so I began to realize that the Holy Spirit's work in binding us together did not depend solely on us being in the same room. I, I consecrate the elements of the sang- at the chan- at the chancel, but we have, you know, we have 44 communion stations in our sanctuary. So there's 44 places where people are receiving communion, and all that bread and wine is not in my hands. And there's no magic happening when I'm praying the prayer, right? It's the holy. We're not. We don't believe in transubstantiation. So. We believe in the Holy Spirit's capacity to be at work. And that was awesome. And it was online and virtual. Right, right. And and I don't even, virtual is not even, I don't even like the name virtual because it was just real. It wasn't like virtual sounds like it's sort of real, but it was just it real. Was real. Yeah. And you know, on a Sunday right now, we're running 20% of what we ran pre-COVID in person live. That's after six weeks of doing this. I don't know that we'll ever be back to the physical, you know, the numbers of people physically present. What I do know is that we're still running three times more people in worship now than we were pre-COVID. We had 3,000 online and 8,000 in person across our campuses pre-COVID. And today we have 2,000 people in person and we have 6,000 people online and 2,000 people on YouTube and 20,000 people on, on our television broadcast here in Kansas City, most of whom had never been a part of our church before. I mean, we've had 100 and I think 150 people join our church so far who've never darkened. They've never been in our building ever. And yet they committed their lives to Christ and said, Church of the Resurrection is my church, including people in other states. Two weeks ago, I baptized a guy and his two sons. His two sons live here in Kansas City. He lives in Denver. And he and his wife joined the church at Coffee with the Pastors last fall. And he flew in from, uh, he drove in from Denver so I could baptize him because he'd never been baptized before. I'm like, how cool is that? Here's a guy from Denver who drove in to be baptized at Resurrection. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty, yeah. Just some cool stuff, you know, like that. It's happening right now. Which probably helped counteract the really uncool stuff going on with the season and, and dragging it home with you. How did you do that personally? What was your catharsis? What what was it that that let you uh, get back, uh, get rid of that and, and start the next day with a clean slate? Yeah. I just preached on this last weekend, the criticism, and I was talking about First Thessalonians. I'm preaching through, you know, what in what in all likelihood is the earliest document of the Christian faith. And the and the letter was Paul's you know, writing to the little church at Thessalonica who had been harassed and criticized by the people in their community. So Paul sends Timothy to check them, you know, to make sure they're okay after Paul leaves. He's in Athens, then Paul's in Corinth, and Timothy comes back and says, you won't believe it. They, they held on to their faith. They didn't give it up. And so this letter is like his encouragement to them, you know, not to give up in the face of criticism. So last Sunday's sermon was all about, you know, what, what it's like when you're criticized, what it's like when people tell you that they're leaving the church because they don't, they don't agree with what you said last Sunday, or what it's like when when people in the workplace or your neighbors or others make fun of you or tease you, or, and we've all had that happen. People putting on Facebook things that are not true and, and uh, you know, question your motives or your whatever. And that is a part of life that's going to happen. And we feel like giving up sometimes in the midst of that. I think uh, the older I get, the, the less that stuff bothers me. It still sometimes bothers me. When you combine political polarization, COVID polarization, racial injustice, and the, and the fallout from that, there were at least Two or three times last year, I told Levon, I'm like, man, I can't wait to retire. Or, you know what? This job isn't fun anymore. I'm ready to quit. I, I wasn't going to really quit, but I, there were moments where I thought about it. I thought about, so your question is, how do you deal with that? One of the beautiful things about COVID was, you know, I had a chance to be home working every day. I, we have a place at the Lake of the Ozarks. So we went to the lake and I worked out, of, I have an office there and I could Zoom call and everything else from there. And so I'd spend three or four days there. 
and I'd go take long walks and I would sing and I would pray and I would walk. And somewhere in all of that, I found a balm for my soul. And I found, you know, I'm reading scripture, you know, as much as ever. And I'm just finding, you know, I, I, it would help me center myself again. And the other thing is just to focus on all the cool stuff that's happening, you know, to give thanks. I found there were times I had to go back to, you know, Paul, you know, give thanks in all circumstances. And I just start thanking God, thank you that I get to be pastor at Church of the Resurrection. Yes, it's a pain in the backside right now, but thank you. I get to I get to do this. I'm really grateful. Thank you for these people. And so I don't know. I don't have any magic answers to it, but I do think gratitude plays a role. I think, you know, being around people and being able to laugh and have fun plays a role. I think uh, remembering everybody gets criticized, everybody. And I also try to think when it comes to criticism, what can I learn from it? Where is their truth in this criticism? They may have expressed it poorly. There may be no truth in it, but I also want to be open to the fact that it's an opportunity for me to grow and to get better. Yeah, That's a great answer and probably helps those that are listening get an insight how to how do clergy work these things out? I mean, you know, we come home and have a bad day and we're in a bad mood too. But how do you, how do you not stay that way? How do you keep yourself from uh, not uh, being a hypocrite when you tell folks, uh, you know, you got to keep things in balance? And they say, well, how do you do it? Yeah. Adam, um, were you able to, as you were navigating your congregation through this and maintaining some level of balance within your own life during unbalanced time, did you or your family, did you all have to deal directly with the implications of COVID? Levon and I both came down with COVID in December of this last year. It was really a, I didn't mind getting, I was, I was actually, you know, I didn't want to get it, but I was quite, you know, I like, if my people are going to get it, I want to get it too. You know, I don't want to, I, I want to be able to know what this feels like and what it's like and to be able to walk in their shoes. And, and of course I didn't want anybody to get it, but Levon has been, she was so careful about everything and she got it first. And it was uh, the week before Christmas. And one of the things we were excited about Christmas was uh, we were filming the Christmas Eve candlelight service. So this was going to be the first time in 30 years that my family was going to be together. My kids, you know, my grown kids, my granddaughter, my son-in-law, we were going to all worship, you know, in front of the TV, like the rest of our, you know, our folks, we were going to have our candles lit and we were going to worship. And then we're going to, you know, they were going to spend the night and we're going to have this wonderful Christmas Eve because I've never had that. I'm always preaching five or six services on Christmas Eve. And, uh, and then Levon got sick and it's like, oh, crud. And so we kind of did this. I had a computer, my laptop set up by the Christmas tree with my kids on it there. And then the TV going with all of us watching it at the same time. And then, uh, and then Levon and I with our candles. And then I got sick just the next day after that. And so we ended up that, that week being sick and, and, you know, we were, she was sicker than I was, but we both had, you know, so that was a, that was another experience. So we were quarantined and in the midst of a horrible year for so many people, I had a friend of mine say this last night. He said, I feel guilty because I had a great year. And like, mm-hmm. I, I feel, I feel guilty to, to some degree, but in the midst of the difficulty, adversity, the criticism, the, all of that, I was, I ate dinner with my wife 365 nights in a row. I'd never done that before. I got to spend more time at the Lake of the Ozarks than I've ever spent in my life. And more than probably the last eight years combined, I learned how to do new things that I hadn't done before. We reached more people than we had ever reached before. We served more in the community, you know, had people mobilized serving the community than we'd ever done before. I think about Churchill's famous speech, you know, right before the British really launched headfirst into the World War II. And, you know, he talked about, you know, let's so live our lives that should the British Empire remain for another thousand years, people look back and say that was their finest hour. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, last year was one of our finest hours as the church. And uh, in the midst of difficulty, adversity, we got a chance to be the church, to be the body of Christ, the incarnation of Jesus in the world. 
And that was just stinking awesome. Does your, do you feel like your folks understand that that's what's happened and have a spirit of gratitude that look at what we were able to be vessels for through this incredibly difficult time for so many people? I think our people had that same sense. I mean, awesome. you know, they knew, and I tried to share with them, you know, last year they gave four times more food than they'd ever given. We're, we were already, I think, the largest source of food other than the food bank. Uh, for food pantries in Kansas City, and they gave four times what they had done before. They gave, we prepared, we provided meals for every hospital worker at every hospital in Kansas City with notes of encouragement. I mean, that was like twenty thousand meals, sixteen thousand meals, or some ridiculous number like that. We, we had, I mean, we were just out. They were just serving like crazy, and and they knew it. Like I was, I was up here one day during an ice storm, and it was a drop off where you could, you know, this was in the in the thick of COVID, where you know you were really worried about even going to the grocery store. And people, and we were unloading groceries, people dropped off for people who were hungry in the middle of an ice storm where they'd been at the grocery store. I mean, these are small little examples, but I think they got a sense and I tried to share with them, this is what you did. And I'm so proud of you and you know what it looked like. And I think they felt that too. And in Kansas City, I think there was a large number of people who that didn't go to our church that knew Church of the Resurrection, man, they were doing it. They were the real deal this year. You know, they were showing people what it means to be the church. I think that that. That happened in several churches, which, and I, I know in the case of church I serve, it was a major saving grace. We hosted mm-hmm. Rumini in a hundred nights last year, and it was a great need. And we we knew those guys needed somewhere to be, uh, and they needed a good meal. Things going to be really tough with everything shut down. So I think that was uh, it, it. Was more than a shot in the arm. It, it was. It was. It fulfilled a deep hunger that people said, well, we've got to do something. Even if yeah. we can't physically get together, we got to do something. Yeah. So uh, that, that yeah, you're right. That was uplifting. And, and you look back and you say, you know, we were the church, uh, even though we couldn't meet as a church, we were still the church. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, crises, I, I think about this a lot. Crises reveal your true character, right? And so in the midst of that crises, you know, those crises that we had this last year, people could see who are we really? And I know that lots of churches did these kind of things. It wasn't just United Methodist, but at the heart of what it means to be United Methodist is this union of faith and actions. You know, it's, it's John Wesley preached on Ephesians, uh, was it Ephesians 2, 8, 9, uh, and 10 over and over and over again. You know, you're saved by, gr- by grace, not by your works, uh, so that no one can boast. And then he goes on to say that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus before the, what, before the foundation of the world to do good works. Right. So we were, we are saved by grace and yet we were made to do good works. We, it's this union of faith and works. And Wesley was always being criticized because, you know, it looked like he was, you know, proclaiming works righteousness when sanctification looked like serving the poor and being out in the community and all this. But it's like, no, how can you, you know, I mean, we know it with our minds, faith and works go hand, you know, go hand in hand. And James's words about that. But United Methodists have this, this driving passion for both bringing people to faith in Christ and you know, and deepening their faith. And then that is meant to lead us to go out in the world and to be Christ incarnation, to do his work in healing the world. Let's shift gears a little bit. During this season, as a United Methodist pastor, how is it with your soul where the denomination's concerned? Yeah. So, you know, I joined the United Methodist Church in college in 1983. And I did as a 18 year old kid who was searching, who, you know, I had come out of a Pentecostal church. I was at Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma, studying to be a Pentecostal pastor, but I had lots of intellectual questions. 
And, you know, my pastors sometimes would say, just don't ask so many questions. Just take it by faith. And I found, you know, no, I, I can't not ask these questions. And uh, after the death of a couple of my good friends in a terrible accident, my questions just increased. And especially around providence and theodicy and how God works in the world. And, and I had questions about scripture and other things. And, and I joined the United Methodist Church feeling like, you know, I loved Wesley's emphasis on the intellect and the heart. And, you know, here's a revival that started at Oxford University, you know, by an Oxford professor, right? Uh, I mean, uh, you know, so you've got, you've got this intellectual side, you've got a revival with the intellectual side that goes with it. You know, and that, that idea that we were, you know, we had both an intellectual curiosity and at the same time we had a, that passionate faith. And so I joined the United Methodist Church and I joined it feeling called by God. I mean, I was just a kid, you know, but feeling called by God to somehow be a part of reviving a church that had been dying for 20 years back in 1986 or 82, I mean, 83. And so that's been part of what's driven me my whole life is this idea of I believe God cares about the United Methodist Church and wants it to have a future with hope. I, and I've given a lot of my time to that. You know, I I spoke at your annual conference. You know, you were one of like 40 annual conferences I spoke at over an eight-year period of time. I'm going to just wore myself out on in May and June of each year my congregation praying for every single pastor in every church and every one of those annual conferences for 30 days straight, you know, and working towards, re, re, you know, reviving or renewing the church. And then you're in a period of time where you watch it being torn apart, you know, and that, that just hurts my heart. And you can't, you know, people, you're trying to be gracious. And I know the uh, Wesley Covenant Association and the good news people are trying to be gracious, you know, as they're preparing to leave. And at the same time, um, you know, you're watching people make the case for why people should leave the United Methodist Church. You know, there. So we got people in our midst who are talking about why why you need to leave, and and that pains me. And I, you know, I read the articles, the WCA articles, and the Good News articles, and you know, these guys, uh, Tom Lambert and Keith Boyette, and and others, right? And it's like, you know, I've responded to one of those because it takes me six hours, you know, to read it, write a response, write another response to get it right. You know, just really think about it for a while four or five hours at least. I don't have that much time. These guys, this is what they do full time, you know, is yeah. being able to write this stuff. I have a I have a job that's 60 hours a week as it is. You know, every time I read one of these articles that comes out and good news, which also grieves me because good news was used to be about renewing the denomination. And and so today it's okay. not about renewing the denomination anymore. It's about helping people think about leaving uh, these people behind. And that saddens me. And I and I think I have a response to every one of the articles that I read in good news. I don't have four hours a week to to write it. (laughs) And so, uh, I don't mean anything against them. I know that for, you know, those brothers and sisters who feel like, Hey, this is, you know, we, you know, we can't be in this denomination anymore. I'm like, you know, I wish them well and God bless them as they go to start their new denomination. But I still love this denomination and I I love Jesus more than the denomination. I wouldn't die for the United Methodist church. I'd die for Jesus. But, but I do believe that God has, has a purpose for us. And I do think that when when I think about the future and reaching new generations, I believe the United Methodist Church, if we rediscover the things that require, you know, that it takes to be vital as a church, we have, we have the better message going forward, no which doubt. is a passionate message for faith, you know, uh, bringing people to faith in Christ, a, a way of reading the Bible that, that I think is more consistent with how Jesus and others read the Bible. And that is to, to be able to ask questions of the text and to, uh, and to listen for God to speak. It's our primary you know, source of, of Christian faith. And at the same time, Jesus asked questions of the text and we do too. And uh, a church that's going to be radically welcoming of people, everybody. And, and I think, I, I think we have the right message. You know, some people think, well, gosh, once we're, 
fully welcoming of everybody, or once we've taken away the language of the book of discipline, you know, we're going to grow. No, you're only, you're going to grow and you learn how to be a vital church. You got to have really good preaching. You got to have awesome welcome of people. You got to reach out to the community. You got to serve the community as the hands and feet of Jesus and demonstrate what it means to be a Christian by your actions. You know, you got to have serious discipleship efforts. You know, all of these other things are important to grow a church, but we will be removing a stumbling block for many people. And I think about my kids' generation. You want to talk to them and say the same things we say in the book of discipline now about their friends. You have no chance of reaching that generation. And I, and in the process, you hurt people. And I don't want my faith to hurt people anymore. I don't want my faith to be bringing harm, psychological and emotional harm to human beings anymore. So I'm happy to see us move to a place where we've removed language that's harmful and calling people to follow Jesus and to give their lives to him wholly and completely. Yesterday, I was talking to my um, Vespers on Tuesday night and I said, you know, I woke up this morning reading 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and living a life pleasing to God. And what I want at Church of the Resurrection is 30,000 people every, every day when they wake up to say, Lord, I want to live a life pleasing to you today. Help me to please you. Help me to bring delight to you. Help me to honor you and how I live. Help me to live a life worthy of the gospel. So I want us to be people who have who've created the most, um, you know, created authentic disciples of Jesus Christ and who are reaching out to new people and who are living the gospel in the world in such a way that people look at us and say, non-religious and nominally religious people look at us and say, okay, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I think I'm interested. So I'm, I'm a little sad about the denomination. And at the same time, I am convinced that where the United Methodist Church is going is the right place for us to be going. And we, we need more than ever to help churches become more vital and alive and remember what it means to be Christians, churches, and, and United Methodists. Well, and I think you made the, the important distinction that uh, folks who want to align themselves with what they think is going to work and what is right, and those are the ingredients for growth, I think that's a horrible disillusion because that's not how it works. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, for a church to be vital means it embraces its context where it's at. And yep. uh, that's hard for folks to do. And mm-hmm. I, I, th- this is related to what we've been talking about. How much has United States politics affected the United Methodist Church? I think it's affected every church in America. And But United Methodists tend to be, you know, we, we have been the via media, the middle way. So we have Republicans and Democrats in our congregations. And we're the church that at one point had uh, George W. Bush and his wife, Laura, worshiping at the same church that Hillary Clinton and Bill were worshiping at in Washington, D.C. at Foundry United Methodist Church. And I'm assuming the Bushes sat on the right side of the aisle and the <laughs> side of the aisle, but you know, that's, that's who we are. But in this day and time, it's become so, and I think that's where most people actually are in America, but we have increasing numbers of people who are, who are further to the right and further to the left or have a hard time you know, looking at compromise, which is politics is the art of compromise, or looking at Hey, those other people may have something important to say. And that just got worse. It's actually been getting worse for the last 12 years, but it, you know, the last four years were particularly difficult. So if you were a Trump supporter, you felt attacked by, you know, people on the left and people who didn't support the president. If you weren't a Trump supporter, you were astounded by how, by things that were said out of the White House and things that happened. And so it became harder and harder, you know, and, and everything again became a proxy for that political divide. So as a church, you know, one of the things we did last fall, we launched a campaign uh, knowing, you know, going right into the election called the Love Your Neighbor campaign, hashtag Love Your Neighbor. 
we put out signs. So it was a political campaign for us and we're all the real, all the, um, uh, candidates for office were putting their signs out in the medians, you know, every street oh, yeah. corner, their signs in the people's yards. And so we had these love your neighbor and love is kind signs. And we had thousands of them put up and our members put them everywhere. So everywhere you looked in the middle of the political signs, there were these love your neighbor signs, church, the resurrection at the bottom of them. We had t-shirts our people were wearing up. We were, we had, our aim was 30,000 acts of kindness during the month of October to just overwhelm the system with acts of kindness and love. Again, it became an opportunity for us to say, this is how broken things are, but we're going to try to be a part of the solution and not the problem. We have an opportunity to, to model that and to live that. And this is our gospel. Like I think about Paul's, you know, let no, un, no, let no evil talk come out of your mouth, but only what is useful for building others up as there is need, that your words might give grace to those who hear. Or Jesus, judge not, lest you be judged with the same measure you judge, you'll be, you know, it'll be judged to you and, uh, or it'll be measured to you. And I mean, you know, do unto others. I mean, our, all of our ethical imperatives tell us, that we got to work against the polarization and the divides that we see in our culture. And, and to be able to still have a, you know, we can take a stand and say, but I'm going to love my neighbor who's of a different political pos- position. And I'm going to try to understand why they believe what they believe and where they're coming from. So how did the signs and the t-shirts go over? <laughs> really well. Actually, you know, we were, most of them came down after the election, but I drive everywhere I drive, I still see them up in people's yards and in, in areas and mine are still up in my yard. At, you know, this is six, seven months later. And we've always seen ourselves as bridge builders. So our, one of our, you know, one of our core values that people, you know, have identified is, you know, I go to resurrection because you're bridge builders. And I think it actually had an impact. I think it dialed down the rhetoric in Kansas city because of the message that we were offering. And I think our members living that, uh, helped dial that down and certainly within our congregation. But again, you know, I had, we had people who left because I, you know, I wasn't going to be supportive of President Trump and they thought I should be supportive of President Trump or they thought whatever I said sounded like I was supporting Biden or somebody else. And it's like, I'm actually trying to just say what I think Jesus would say in our world. And I'm not telling you who to vote for. I'm not telling you which candidate is the one you need to, you have to, you know, you're going to make that decision. I'm going to tell you what I think the gospels teach us about what it means to be a human being and how we're meant to live our lives. And, um, that's controversial enough. You know, anymore, it kind of is actually. And, you know, I think about January 6th and, you know, trying to say something on January 6th, I'm watching this, you know, the the attack on the Capitol happening. And, you know, whatever I said in response, I don't even remember on social media and and then that weekend of worship, you know, most people were appreciative and other people were like, you're showing your true colors. You know, you should, you, you just should stay out of politics. Like, well, this isn't about politics. This is about being human. This is about what it means to, to, you know, what, and what it means to be an American. And this is just not okay. This is, there's no part of this is okay. And, uh, and our president played some role in stirring this up. You can't listen to the speech. I was actually listening to the speech in real time while I was working on my sermon. I'm like, I'm worried something bad's going to happen after this. There are things that, that president Trump did that I agree with in his, over his four years of, of his administration. There are things that I think, okay, that was disruptive and it was probably the right thing to do. And there are other places where I disagree. And for me, it's not about, you know, whether I agree or disagree with the president. It is about what does it mean to lead in a divided world? And there were places and times where this was not leadership. This was, this was, this was leading a nation to further division and polarization. It's, it's, it's hard. I told our, you know, those who would talk to me who are Trump, you know, strongest Trump supporters said, look, I love you. There's nothing will change that. I love you. And, and there are things I have appreciated that, you know, the president you support has done. And I think he doesn't get credit for some of those things. And 
there are things that he has done that I think are inconsistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ and that are, and that's true of every president. But in this case, you know, there's some things, there are some times where we have to say, you know, to be the church, we got to say, okay, these things are not okay. And uh, I don't blame President Trump entirely for January 6th, but, uh, but I do think he, certainly the speech and the rhetoric was aimed at inciting people to do something. And I don't think it was surprising when people acted upon that. And so. Well, and, and in trying to be a, 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 a spiritual shepherd and shepherding people through that, uh, in saying the, the truth and love does put you in the damn if you do, damn if you don't situation. And I think that's where a lot of folks, uh, and not just United Methodists found themselves. Uh, yeah. so, you know, that it's pretty easy to be inhibited. What am I going to say next that's going to incite somebody? Well, yeah, and that is again why after a while you get paralyzed by that and you don't say anything because you're afraid who who's going to leave or who's going to withdraw their pledge if I say anything. So you know you just don't say. I right. think that's true for a lot of pastors. Is it's just easier not to say anything, and you do have to be careful. I think you have to really try to understand both sides of an issue. Try to really understand and walk in somebody else's shoes who's in a different place than you are, and and that's led me at times not to say something because I thought, okay, wait, now I understand better why they're why they're advocating for what they're advocating for. Yeah, it's hard. It's a hard deal. And, and, you know, it's interesting as, again, somebody who's more of a centrist, which is how I see myself. And I think, you know, many people in our congregation see themselves is you get it from both sides. So I, you know, I have this woman who, who, uh, routinely, you know, zings me on Twitter. She said, you just need to tell, you need to tell your congregation that if they vote for Republicans, they're part of the problem and we need to throw all the Republicans out. And I'm like, seriously? Uh, well, first of all, uh, good luck to you if that's how you lead people. But, you know, that is not, First of all, I have a lot of Republican politicians that I, and I value them and they're bringing our values to the, t- you know, our church's values to the table when they do. And in Kansas, it's hard to get elected if you're not running as a Republican anyway. And so there are, you know, I vote for Republicans and Democrats both times around. There are certain policies I do and don't support in either, either party. But, uh, you know, so I, from the left, you didn't say enough. You should have been more critical. You should have. And, uh, and from the right, you know, you were too critical. Why were you? And so it's, it's always kind of an interesting balancing act. It's not even a balancing act, just trying to figure out. And, and part of what I say is you got to ask this question, how do you speak to the people in your congregation? I mean, it's so I, when I think about prophetic preaching, and many people have heard me say this, when you're preaching about what's going on in the world and asking, how does the gospel relate to that? And you're going to say a hard word. You got to ask, am I, is my goal merely to irritate people or is it to influence them? It's super easy to irritate people. It doesn't take any rhetorical or pastoral skill to just irritate people. You just get up, stand up, say what you want to say, let the chips fall where they may, and you lose those people and they never, you know. But if you want to influence people, you got to ask, what would, how would I have to say this where people might hear it? And where they might, you know, repentance. I love the word repentance, uh, metanoia. It means to, literally means to think differently afterwards. It means to have a change of mind that leads to a change of heart that leads to a change of behavior. So if you're preaching for repentance, sometimes it's just saying that, you know, you've sinned and you got to repent. But most of the time for thoughtful people and you're dealing with complex issues, it, it doesn't work that way. It works in trying to help people consider a view other than their own and finally come to a place where they say, I never thought of it that way before. That actually may be right. And that and is you, hard work for people to do. And it is hard work for leaders to try to get people to that place. It is. It is. And, and no matter what, you're going to be criticized somewhere along the way. And I think that's, 
you know, you're going to be, you're going to have people who criticize, but you keep going and you keep speaking, but you try to speak in a way that people can hear. And mm-hmm. I think that's the, at least that's how I think you do is if you're a prophet, you can do whatever you want, but you don't have to be a pastor if you're a prophet, you just show up and then you leave. But uh, there's, right. there's always, yeah, a price. But if you're, there's a price to be paid typically for one who is the prophet one way or the other. Yeah. Um, that's true. I wanted to, if you're a pastor, you've got to be a prophet while you're being a pastor. That's shepherd. true. Where, where Sky and I are if a 40-year friendship, I am far and away to the left of him. That doesn't impact our relationship at all. We love each other. Brothers always will. Part of my work as I finished my last years in ministry, I was at the church in Memphis that is the progressive church. And I I hear well what you're saying when you're when you're speaking into a middle place. It got to be with with St. John's. I was just trying to keep them from bolting because right. I had gay and straight folks who said, mm-hmm. I can't be in a church that can't welcome everybody anymore. Right. Which was real and it's still an open question, you know, in their next iteration of leadership of what they do. My hope and prayer is that there's room for them in whatever's becoming. But I did want to acknowledge to you, I was in St. Louis when you made your speech at the end of the big vote, and I was really moved by that prophetic word in that moment that just laid bare pretense. It just said, this is where we are. What are we doing? That had to take a profound bit of holy boldness for you, and I, I acknowledge that, and I was grateful for it, and I wanted you to know that from me. I appreciate that very much. Yeah, it's it's. Uh... It's been an interesting, that part has been an interesting journey. You know, I, so what your church, St. John's, where St. John's is, and what I keep saying to the more progressive churches is, you know, A, we need you. B, we're moving in a direction that you're going to want to be a part of that. And, but it is going to require two more years of patience, I think, or another, you know, some period of time, which is hard. Patience is hard. But, you know, if the, if the most progressive churches leave, now, I want to say this. I think United Methodists ideally are progressive evangelicals and evangelical in the 18th century sense of the Wesleyan. Absolutely. Wesley launched yeah, the evangelical Bible in the 18th century. We are progressive evangelicals. We are liberal conservatives and conservative liberals. I don't know. A, every United Methodist I know is liberal compared to somebody and conservative compared to somebody else. No doubt. I mean, that's just, that's just, you know, how it is. But if the churches who are saying we want the church to be radically inclusive of everybody leave, then where's that voice? You know, what, where's that, what, where's the balance hanging? And I've said the same thing to some of the conservative churches who, you know, like if you guys are passionate about leading people to Jesus and you all leave, what does that mean? Like we, we really need you to be, you know, to continue to remind us and challenge us to be passionate about bringing people to Jesus. I do think that we have that the United Methodist church, of the future is going to be a church where we are progressive and evangelical. We are passionate about social justice and we're passionate about leading people to a deep faith in Jesus Christ. We're going to, you know, we are going to be a church that is going to welcome LGBTQIA plus people. And at the same time, we're going to be a church that calls everyone to holiness of heart and life. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I mean, we're, we're going to be a church that's, that is passionate about grace and passionate about living a life worthy of the calling that God has called us with. And so it's that holding together of those things, you know, the intellect and the heart justice and and uh, evangelism all of that that makes us i think distinctively who we are so i'm hoping saint jane saint john sticks around me too and uh you know i think that they're they will play an important role in the church 
I want to move dramatically here because there's one question I have for you. In your staff meetings, do you ever ask your staff to keep matriculating the ball down the field, boys? <laughs> Hank Stram. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that was a Super Bowl 50 years ago when, uh, well, now 51 years ago when the Chiefs won the Super Bowl, beat Green Bay out. No, it was not, not Green Bay. It was Minnesota Vikings. Uh, they it beat. was the Vikings. And, uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, no, we don't. <laughs> Hank Stram is quite a character. But no, we have had a lot of fun with the Chiefs uh, winning the Super Bowl a year ago and back again last year and disappointed, obviously, in the outcome last year. But we have had a ball with that. I mean, you know, we we had, uh, all, you know, all the way through the playoffs wearing our Chiefs uniforms mm-hmm. to, to church. You know, we I did a whole series of sermons on the gospel according to football or the gospel and football. And interviewing football players and looking at where do you see the parallels and some really great stories. And we're pretty proud of those chiefs, you know, and what, what happened over the last year, hoping we get a good offensive line this year so we can go back and have another (laughs) shot. My first team love I'm from Western Kentucky. My first team love was AFL and it was without question the chiefs. So that whole lineup of Lenny Dawson and all of those guys, um, so, um, uh, yes, I'm familiar with your affinity for the team through uh, social media. So I, I wanted to at least acknowledge there's some history that, that what's happening now is amazing, but that's a storied franchise. Yes, it is. Yeah, it really is. They were, uh, they were the first team. Well, uh, Lamar Hunt started the AFL was one of the, one of the uh, guys who helped start the American right. football league and then you know, brought them together in the Super Bowls, the first Super Bowl. And of course they were the Dallas Texans to begin with and had, Virtually nobody would come and watch them play. And so he moved to Kansas City. And uh, I've got a guy in our church um, uh, who is one, who was one of the players on the team uh, back in that, oh, back wow. when they were the Dallas Texans. Yeah. Yeah. And so, he, and then he moved to Kansas City and he became, you know, one of the first chiefs. And he has this original football helmet that he wore back in the day. And he's sworn that when he dies, it's in his will that he's going to give it to me. He just let me borrow it several times to, you know, to use it in sermons. And it's all banged up and you just see all the paint scratched off of it because they used to, you know, that's just how they used to play. And, and, uh, yeah, I get pretty excited about, about, uh, watching the Chiefs play. It was rough. All my family, both sides of my family from Kansas and in college basketball, it's Wichita State, Kansas State, Kansas. They can get into knockdown dragouts, but everybody. <laughs> everybody's a chiefs fan oh yeah everybody's a chiefs fan it was a rough it was rough to lose that game yeah so man that was that was a hard game last year to lose Uh, i had the joy of being at the super bowl when we won the year before and we had the chiefs had asked us if we would do worship services at the stadium they have a like a, a tent outside the stadium on sunday mornings where they were having chapel services and they had asked would you guys consider leading the worship services out there and would you come preach you know and so I preached, I think, twice at that at those services, but our other pastors led at every home game uh, that was a Sunday noon game, and so we we did this for a year. And when it came time for the Super Bowl, I had I had season tickets last year, and uh, when it came time for the Super Bowl, I contacted the Chiefs and I said, you know, there's a lottery, and I couldn't get a ticket, but I I talked to my guy who was there, and I said, is there any chance that you guys would have a ticket that you could, you know, I don't, I'll even buy it, I'll buy it at face value. I'm not going to pay the numbers that other people are paying, but and he said, you know, I'm going to, I have three tickets that are set aside for if we forgot to send a ticket to somebody and we need them, you know, up to the last minute, like if there was a player we forgot or, you know, player's family or whatever. And he said, but if you want to be ready to come to the game at any moment, 
I might have a ticket for a couple of tickets for you. And uh, so we'd already planned our vacation to be in Orlando that year uh, and took our granddaughter and our kids to Disney World and Universal Studios and all that. So it was Sunday and they still said, I, we just can't release them yet. We can't release them. We don't have anybody who needs them, but we can't release them. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to drive down to Miami just in case. And so a, a buddy of mine and I drove down to Miami and we, as I was pulling in to a parking space, I got a call and they said, okay, your tickets are at gate B. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh, it was, it was just, That's awesome. I, and it was one of the highlights of my sporting career or not career, but my sports fan career was That's to be awesome. there and to cheer them on when they won. It was, it was pretty stinking cool. That's, That's awesome. awesome. Adam, thank you well, for, for uh, making time for us. Wow. I was glad to do it. I really appreciate having a chance to visit with you guys and, and uh, grateful for your hearts and your love for Christ and your love for the church and what you're trying to do and, and promote, you know, conversations among folks. I really appreciate that. So thank you. Thank you. Well, you're welcome. Bless you. Well, we're certainly grateful uh, for Adam's time today as he speaks with us on something to say, uh, a very candid uh, conversation with one of the leaders in the United Methodist Church. And uh, we feel like we've been blessed today. Yeah, it was really good of him to give us time um, just to work us into schedule. Sky, just for clarity, it's Sky's connection with Adam that made that possible. And uh, I'm all about Sky using his network to get us people uh, in front of you that you can listen to. So thank you for listening in. We're grateful to Gil, who is uh, engineering from far away. And we're grateful for Zencaster that makes today possible. Until next time, gratefully we are that you listen. And we invite you to listen again on Something to Say. Take care. Something to Say is an OAM Network podcast, hosted by Johnny and Sky, produced by Gil Worth, logo and designed by the OAM Network, available on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and theoamnetwork.com. Music courtesy of the Traveling Cokesberries. On the next, something to say. Sky and Johnny welcome Tom first to the podcast. Tom is among that subset of clergy given the opportunity to plant a new church and to imprint upon it the DNA of the community of faith that worships there. What are the challenges? What are the opportunities? Tom tells it like it is. Join us next time on Something to Say on the OAM Network. Power to the podcast.